This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com fool and enter promo code fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It is Tuesday, June 21st, and I'm your host, Vincent Shen, here to talk consumer retail with a very special guest. So the theme of industry focus this week is interns ask, and you know summer had its official start yesterday. So something exciting at full headquarters that accompanies the season is of course our summer interns who actually had their first day I think at the very beginning of the month. So the industry focus crew reached out to them, gave them the opportunity to ask some questions about investing, companies, industries, anything that we could really talk about and walk through on the show together. So I'm very happy to introduce our special guest and intern Menasha Lamisa. How you doing? I'm doing great, Vincent. How are you? I'm doing very well. Um, let's you know put the announcement out there that this is your first time on a podcast. Yes, it is. Feeling the jitters a little bit? <laughs> a little bit, but I'm super excited to be here. Okay, so I you know I'll put it out there that uh, Menasha and I spoke before the show. You know, we put putting some prep into this question that you know we kind of do a deep dive into, and I think uh, we have a really interesting discussion ahead of us that kind of lays out this industry. But before we get started, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and you know how your experience has been so far at the Fool. Mm-hmm, for sure. So I'm originally from Bangladesh, but I go to school in Berea College in Kentucky. I'm working with the international team right now, and I've been pretty much primarily working for Global Markets Research, and it's been really great so far. This company has done a great job welcoming us and treating us and also spoiling us, um, and I look forward to many more great experiences here. Awesome. You guys uh, finish up at the end of July, right? Yes, so July 31st. at the halfway point. Yes. Okay, well, I'm glad that you know so far it's been a good experience for you, um, and you know, diving right into it, I guess, you know, why don't we start off with the question that you had and the one that I ended up picking so we could really talk about on the show? Yeah, for sure. So, my question was what are the potential effects of the recent Orlando tragedy on the gun industry? But I'm actually curious about how the unfortunate events like mass shooting affect the gun industry in general. But I think before we deep dive into it, it's good for us to talk a little bit about who exactly is the gun industry and how big is it. Okay, yeah, I'm glad you uh, mentioned that. Essentially, you know, with that question, obviously, uh, you know, there's a lot of politics and a lot. It's a very divisive issue. So trying to approach this from you know a, more of a neutral angle and the investing angle, if we look at you know this industry and who is in it, you know, that's going to give us a much better idea of like what some of the impacts will be. Obviously, so. I think overall we're going to probably focus more on the consumer-facing side of the business, um, not so much the military contractors and suppliers because, frankly, that it, those are much bigger companies operating in a much bigger space. And you know, on past episodes we tended to kind of focus on some of the producers and manufacturers of the rifles and pistols, ammunition. But you know, I think we neglected a little bit more the retail-facing side, which encompasses not only your like mom and pop gun store, but also some of your larger chain stores that focus on like uh, what you might call you know outdoors or hunting and that kind of customer segment. Um, and in terms of the size of the industry, so you know we know a little bit about who we're talking about, but also the size now is for the former category. So think about the gun and ammo manufacturers. Uh, according to Ibis World Research, the sector generates about $13.5 billion in annual sales in the U.S. They manufactured over 9 million firearms in 2014, and that production number has actually tripled from just 3 million 
in uh, 2004. So a lot of growth uh, for the sector over the past uh, decade or so. And on the retail side, and here's some surprising numbers. I'm going to ask you a question. How many gun stores do you think there are in the United States? Um, 20,000. Okay, that's actually a pretty solid guess. So, I have some numbers and it's not always clear sometimes with the metrics that they use in this industry like it's it's not always like a one for one comparison but the ultimate idea is you know the uh, the Bureau of Alcohol Tobacco and Firearms they put the number of licensed gun dealers in the US at about 65,000 which is huge by the way because if you make a comparison to you know other really prolific companies that have a lot of locations think like a Starbucks right there's always the idea it's one wow. on every corner or McDonald's like those only have around 12,500 or about 14,000 locations um, and you know there's also been comments made that has essentially how there's more gun stores than there are even grocery stores in this country but uh, it, that 65,000 number isn't exactly representative cuz not every single one of those is like a you know a, uh, an actual storefront that's actively dealing in guns a lot of them might be like uh, people who are in the industry who for example you know gunsmiths and things along those lines that don't actually sell firearms some of the players now that we're going to discuss do you know any of these names that uh, that are, I guess, active in this industry? Yeah. First of all, I have to say I could never imagine there were sixty-five thousand. Even when I said twenty thousand, I thought I was overestimating. Yeah. But wow, that's a mind-blowing number. And I know there are a lot of small, privately owned gun manufacturing companies, but I believe there are only two public companies that we usually tend to hear about, and they're Smith and Wesson and Sturm Ruger. Yes. Am I wrong? Am I right? That you got it. Uh, so that's the thing here in this sector, and this is kind of uh, I think has limits sometimes a little bit of our coverage on it is the fact that you know of all those dealers, for example, example that we mentioned, you know, a lot of these mom and pop gun stores simply they're not publicly traded. It's hard to access them. And then on the firearm, I guess on the manufacturing side also, you have. Uh, the two companies you mentioned, uh, Smith & Wesson, Sturm Ruger, and you also have uh, a few others like Vista Outdoor, but a lot of these companies too will be, uh, they might sell firearms, uh, especially the bigger chains like a Walmart for example, but that's such a small part of their business and I don't think it's just nearly as comparable to include them uh, when we're talking about this. But for I guess what you would call more the pure play companies, uh, those are the ones that we're thinking about. And admittedly, Smith and Wesson and Sturmruger actually, by uh, manufacturing volume, are the two biggest producers, uh, generally year to year in the industry. So, uh, at least we're looking at the two biggest names in that regard. So, uh, Smith and Wesson, if you want to, uh, if you're kind of curious to hear about their individual size, they recently reported their fiscal 2016 results. With about seven hundred twenty-three million dollars in sales and firearms, making about ninety percent of that number, uh, Sturm Ruger had trailing twelve-month revenue of about five hundred eighty-seven million dollars, and um, so again, size. Those are bigger companies in the space, but uh, actually, you know, it does. Get, it gives me a sense, in my opinion, of the fact that there's a lot. It's a very competitive industry. There's a lot of uh, big. Players like these companies, but also tons of smaller ones, privately owned, and it. I wouldn't say that any single company has really that dominant market share that you might typically see in other sectors within consumer and retail. But at the same time, the dealers with among the dealers and retailers themselves, like the more consumer-facing side, uh, again, is very competitive, and fragmented, and you know, Cabela's, which would be considered as one of the bigger chains that 
sells uh, a lot of firearms, their hunting equipment category, which includes guns, ammo, archery products, and some accessories, that made up about 45% of their merchandise sales, or about $1.6 billion in revenue last year. And at Dick's, their hard lines category um, had over $3 billion in sales for fiscal 2015, but that's not exactly clear. Again, like an instance here where the numbers aren't uh, kind of include other things that aren't as relevant is the fact that uh, you know that includes all sporting goods, fitness equipment, and other uh, you know anything that you would get equipment-wise for sports. So it just muddies up the numbers a little bit. Wow, that's great. So going back to my original question, now I'm really curious. Now that I have a bigger idea of what the industry looks like, looks like, I'm curious about what are the factors that drive the industry. Sure. So, you know, we have a picture, I guess, painted a little bit, how big it is, who some of the players are, just to give you a sense uh, of that environment. But in terms of the factors, and this is where we kind of get into more of the politics, but also the fact that they do have a very real impact on, uh, you know, how these companies will fare, especially with like surges in demand. So, when you have incidents like this one you specific, the tragedy recently in Orlando, um, you'll often see a short-term impact in demand, as a lot of the news will frankly scare the public, and a lot of people, on one hand, will might turn to firearms protection, because they think they see this, they think there's an increase in crime, and that need to be, uh, I guess, more responsible for their safety, or they just have that on their mind, and they might turn to this. And that results in a short-term kind of surge in demand. And at the same time, you know, on the political side, uh, we've seen this recently during most of the election, uh, most of the presidential election campaigns. But gun controls become a really big issue uh, that's at the forefront uh, for some of these candidates. And again, that's coming off of what happened in Orlando. We have again this more short-term to mid-term impact that often follows, and we'll see how that kind of becomes. A bit cyclical as uh, it has happened in the past, and I'd say really it's the politics that have a bigger impact on the market dynamics. And um, you know, following what happened, for example, at Sandy Hook in 2012, uh, you know, there's a major push then, similar to now, for new gun control laws. And I think that's a, it's an analogy that you can see now that we have the data, we have the numbers. Um, how big those surges can be, and how uh, the you know the companies will try and adjust to meet that demand. So uh, in December of 2012, uh, you know the month of the shooting, checks went up 50 percent, and uh, that was just in the last two weeks of the month, and that ended up kicking off a six-month buying spree, where background checks were up 37 percent above the same period the previous year. So huge surge in demand, and how does that impact the companies themselves? Uh, you know the production volumes were up for both uh, Sturm Ruger and Smith and Wesson were up over 30 percent in 2013, uh, trying to meet you know this uh, this surge. And then their Smith and Wesson sales specifically, they went up almost 40 percent for that fiscal quarter that ended in January after what happened. And Ruger Sturm Ruger sales went up 50 percent for their holiday quarter. So you can see it's, you know these are very significant impacts that they have, and. Uh, if you're looking at those companies, you know you can look at what their profits have been, what their revenue has been, and if you're trying to look more broadly at the industry, though, uh, there's a few numbers that I think it's important for uh, you know listeners and people who are potentially thinking about investing in the industry that they need to know, and that's the NICS background checks, which 
Uh, a lot of people, I think, would consider to be the closest proxy for sales. Um, they're not perfect one-to-one. There's a lot of little things that can throw the numbers off. But overall, if you look at them like at a trend basis, they can be very telling. And then also, there's the manufacturing data from the ATF, which you can see you know, exactly how many uh, firearms were produced by each of these companies, not just the publicly traded ones either, um, you know, any company that is you know within the purview essentially of the ATF. You can see uh, the market share by volume, which is really interesting. And so, with NICS checks, uh, and I think with I, I mentioned the current presidential election, which I would argue has even more of a mid to long term impact on demand. You know, this year has really kind of added to a bit of the chaos as guns have become that big issue. And so we have had 13 months actually in a row of year over year. Uh, increases in checks from the NICS, and as in those thirteen months, even more incredibly so, have all been for their month like essentially record-setting all-time highs. So clearly, right now, I think with a combination of all these, what's going on in the news, and then what's going on on the in, in Washington D.C. here, local to us, it's really pushing. I think people to essentially similar to what happened in 2012, but even to a higher level, kind of stock up. And people who are concerned that there might be certain guns they can't buy in the future, really turning uh, or going to the stores now and kind of getting what they can before they what they fear are potential uh, new regulations coming down the line. So, you know, in terms of my own personal calculations, you know, we have the NICS background check data through May for 2016, and based on averages for how much that period generally represents per year, you know, annualizing it out. It, we were we're going to see potentially up to 28 million checks uh, for uh, 2016. That's well above what was a record-setting year for 2015, which was about 23 million checks. So it just seems like year after year after year we're getting we're setting these new records. Um, and like I said, it's not a perfect proxy for what the gun sales are, but it just gives you an idea of um, you know how much the the uh, industry is growing overall. It appears. And uh, the last thing I wanted to just touch on too, uh, for more on the investor side, is the fact that since the beginning of 2009, which is when President Obama, you know, his his eight-year term, uh, which is closing out soon, Smith and Wesson and Sturm Ruger had their stocks have traded up right around 800 percent, while the S&P 500 over the same period has only about been up 130 percent. So again. Uh, Regardless of you know what your stance is on the politics or on, you know on this issue overall, as divisive as it is, uh, these companies definitely uh, you have to think about how these play into their businesses because it has a very real effect. And you know for the past decade or so for these companies, they've definitely benefited benefited from the you know uh, increased demand. So uh, I know that you had a few more questions around kind of developments in terms of not only like what we're think how. Uh, we're thinking about safety in the industry, but also some things with ethical investing. But before we move on, this episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Casper. I've always been a big believer in the advice that you should spend wisely on the things that you keep you on the ground. Your shoes, your tires, and your mattress. So considering how much I value my shut-eye, I used to assume that I would need to spend thousands of dollars for a proper night's sleep. But Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting out the cost from dealing with resellers and showrooms, and then passing those savings directly to the consumer. 
Their mattresses are obsessively engineered, combining spring latex foam and supportive memory foam to create an award-winning sleep surface. All offered at very fair prices that you can buy online and risk-free. So instead of being forced to make a major purchase after you just lie down for maybe 30 seconds in a showroom, Casper understands the importance of really giving your mattress a test run with free delivery and painless returns within a 100-day period, which is only fair if you plan to spend about a third of your life on what you're about to buy. So if you can save an additional fifty dollars toward a mattress purchase by going to Casper.com/fool, entering the promo code fool. Terms and conditions apply. So going to those follow-up questions, you know, what do you think so far from what you've seen about you know smart guns, ethical investing, those things? So when I was looking into the effects of the Orlando mass shooting in the gun industry, I was particularly curious about ethical investing because I know ethical investing is a much bigger thing now than it was 10 years ago, and people put a lot more thought into buying stocks than they did before on what really the company is looking at. So I'm curious how ethical investing affects the gun industry. Do people take their money out of these industries because they're afraid that it's going to negatively impact the society? Or do they not? Or does it have a very little impact? Yeah, I think uh, in the consumer and retail space, especially because a lot of these companies will produce uh, products that are kind of how uh, that you see very often in your household household names, you can call it. Um, there's definitely been probably more of a push in the past ten years, I'd say, where people can think about these companies and making sure that they are investing in ones that kind of represent their values. I don't think it's necessarily uh, the primary driver for most investors, but it's something that factors into their investing decisions, uh, like you mentioned. And I think overall, there's definitely been a push from some gun control advocates to kind of uh, for certain asset management companies, investment managers to kind of move away from gun stocks because they view it as just you know not fitting with their uh, with their ethics, and then also. Um, Trying to remove them from like certain investment funds and things along those lines, but overall, I think it's a personal decision for you if you were thinking about this, like whether or not you want to invest in uh, companies like these gun makers or even like tobacco companies or alcohol companies, which you would uh, traditionally call like our sin stocks. But the, ultimately, I don't think it goes beyond much of that, uh, more of that personal decision. Like We're not seeing a mass exodus, for example, from these companies because people are having issues with this. Ultimately, you know, it's with about, I think, almost half of homes, households in the country usually having one at least one firearm. Uh, it's clearly not this super clear-cut issue uh, where, uh, the, where people overwhelmingly swing one way and just move away from the industry. So, I think it's much more of a personal decision. Um, and then uh, something else that you had mentioned to me in in terms of you know your curiosity you had about developments in the space with smart gun technology. It's interesting to see that you know uh, in the beginning of the year, President Obama he announced some efforts to get to dedicate more federal resources to smart gun research. He noted. Uh, with this quote, we need to develop new technologies that make guns safer. If we can set it up so you can't unlock your phone unless you've got the right fingerprint, why can't we do the same thing for guns? So here, what do you think about that overall statement, that sentiment? So I think like 
From the push of President Obama, I could only imagine that people would be willing to put more money in the stocks of these companies because if they're concerned about security, this is something that's definitely going to be put into work for the companies to be putting these security measures. But I'm really curious why this has not taken off yet. Yeah, so on the one hand, you can look at it as a huge opportunity, right? Like here is something that... uh, the presidential administration is really pushing for, and like I, I, you can almost see it as like an opportunity for innovation in the industry, right? And potentially push people who were previously fearful or kind of like on the fence with guns to say, oh, okay, well, you know, if it has these added safety measures, it might be a new market that uh, some of these companies that we mentioned can access. But I think the problem right now is just, you know, the technology. Doesn't always, I guess, just mix that well. So, uh, you know, just breaking it down to how it works, basically, right currently, most of the smart guns that you will see use some type of RFID uh, radio technology. So it's like if you have a ring, for example, with the eye gun, it, it's a shotgun. You have if you have the ring on and it connects with the sensor within the firearm, um, basically identifying each other, and then then the gun will fire. And then there's another one that's from Germany. It's, I think it's called the Armatix IP1 that uses a watch, and the the concept is sound. Right, the idea being like, especially if you're like a police officer, you don't want your firearm to be used against you. And the idea can be that uh, this will prevent accidents and things like that as well. But I think the problem is, even as much as uh, I think a lot of people in the U.S. consumers have really heartily adopted things like smartphones and wearables, it doesn't exactly fit with what people value who are gun buyers, which is often reliability. And the issue being that. You know, you can take those electronics and put them in a smartphone, and they can work relatively reliably. Though I've had friends who use the fingerprint uh, scanner on their iPhone, Apple iPhones, for example, who have complained that it really is, doesn't work all the time for them. They might take five or six tries, for example. But you, your cell phone, you generally take pretty good care of it. Whereas, like every single time you fire a gun, for example, it's like you are containing a small explosion. It's very violent, and uh, combining that with you know the delicate electronics, for example, has resulted in some issues. You know this technology isn't all that new either. Even in the early '90s, uh, companies started kind of think gun companies started thinking about this and the opportunity here. And there's actually a story I think that kind of set off what would be like a cold, uh, a cold uh, phase where companies realized like, okay, this might not actually be as um, popular, or this might not actually see the mass adoption that we think it will, which is when Colt uh, basically was had major financial struggles in the 90s, and they were uh, taken over by an industry outsider, so somebody who's not really familiar with the firearms industry. So he decided to make a push. Uh, he invested a lot, of, uh, a lot of money, millions of dollars, kind of staking a bit of Colt's future on this idea that they can create a pistol that will work similar to the Armatix with a wristband, essentially. Uh, they need to be with a certain distance from each other in order for the gun to operate and fire. And, you know, they thought they had this prototype working really well, uh, everything looked good, but he was still kind of getting a lot of pressure from both the firearm industry side that said, no, we're not interested in this, or we're concerned that once this becomes available, it'll be the only thing that's available. And that's and then on the even on the more gun control side, they were saying like, no, this isn't a good idea because the idea because we don't we're trying to get rid of guns entirely. Uh, you know, trying to make so he was getting pressure from both sides and kind of in that light. But he invited a Wall Street reporter 
to the facilities in Connecticut to kind of demonstrate this and hopefully get some good press for them. And you know, the moment comes, the reporter's sitting there, they take the gun out, put the wristband on to demonstrate, and when they try to fire, it fails. And this was, you know, documented quite clearly in the resulting uh, report in the Wall Street Journal. And I think that really set off this period where, here, look at this company, Colt, really big brand name within the industry. Uh, that's, uh, and they spent millions of dollars on this, and it blew up in their face essentially. So, you know, I don't think with the smart gun, smart gun technology, it is that crystal clear. Like this is obviously something that will work. But at the same time, I don't think anyone can argue the fact that it's worth some research, and it is an opportunity. I think if these companies uh, like Smith and Wesson and Ruger approach it in the right way, potentially in the future, and uh, you know, we can have a decent conversation about it nationally, then it. Yeah, it's basically uh, an opportunity for them to to access consu- uh, certain consumers who otherwise wouldn't consider it, and to hopefully increase the safety and reduce accidents, for example. So, otherwise, you know, I kind of want to open up the floor to you in case you have any other questions. But uh, I hope that answers a little bit of what you mentioned with the original thing, or your original prompt, I guess, that started this whole conversation of you know what the industry is and how certain events like what happened in Orlando kind of affect things. Yeah, I just want to thank you, Vincent, for making it really clear to me what the gun industry look like looks like. Sure. I keep saying that. No, no worries. And um, I think I came in with the idea about ethical investing, but now I'm much more aware of the trends of the gun industry mm. and what really goes behind consumer behavior when they're purchasing guns and also gun stocks. Um, so thank you. Yeah, I, and just to go off of that too, you know, you mentioned. Understanding what the industry is like and the consumers, and I think that's you know a core piece of you know I know right now you're in school probably don't have all that money or as much money set aside to be pouring into the stock market, but at the same time just the idea is that before you start investing, before you start putting money into these stocks, you want to know the industry, and that means not just who the companies are like that we did cover, uh, who the market leaders might be, but also understanding what some of the consumers. That are you know buying the products made in in that industry are focused on what is a priority to them, and also again some of the non I wouldn't say as business focused uh, drivers, but you know kind of like the macro elements like politics for example, which have a very strong impact, and uh, you know are very much correlated with the results for this industry. But uh, no pressure here. I'm actually kind of curious. What do you think? Would you potentially look into investing? In this industry, I think I would just because there is an opportunity for technology and innovation in this industry, especially with all the pushes, all the political pushes, and also with all the unfortunate events, which kind of makes the society think about whether those pushes are required or not. And I think there is a big opportunity for this industry. And as an investor, I think I would invest in the gun stocks because of that potential opportunity in the future. Okay, cool. So. Uh, seems like you have a little bit of a more bullish take on it, but of course, I know you got to do your research, like we always recommend here. But uh, I'm really glad uh, that you're able to join me, and um, you know, I hope that the second half of your internship here is is uh, as fun as the first half has been. Yeah, so that sure. wraps up our discussion for today. Uh, you can continue the conversation with us via Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or send us any questions or comments via email to industryfocus at fool.com. You can also enjoy the other great podcasts from the Motley Fool by checking out fool.com/podcast. 
People on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening, and Fool on.